Welcome to the Grace Hill Podcast, a weekly podcast of our Sunday messages driven by our pastor. Grace Hill exists to bring God's biblical truth to your everyday life. As we begin this week's message, we invite you to open your Bibles and capture what God has in store for you today. So, last week we started a brand new series called Long Days and Short Years as we deal with family, as we talk about the family and we talk about the home and, and we talk about children. And that is a, is a big topic in our world, right? Many of us in this room, we have children. And some of us in this room, we may be single and some of us, we may not have children. And let me tell you this, in our church, you still play a role in raising our children. You still play a role in our church. You are still valued in our church. Not, you, know, you don't have to have children in the church for us to value you. We, we look to you and we say, we need your help raising our children as well because our children still look to you. Our children still see you. And there may be interactions and times when you are over for dinner or, or building relationships. You are still seen in the way you live and the way you act and all the things help us in raising our children or, or their detriment to how we raise our children, right? And so you are valued as a single. You are valued as a family without children. Children, hear me when I say that we love you in our church and we need you as a part of our church because you serve a vital role even, even in raising our children within this church. And so thank you for being a part of our church. But I would say this as we jump into today, no one needs to prove to us that we are watching the death of the germ cell of civilization, the family. We could, we could talk about statistics over and over and over. We could pull out every stat that you've ever heard about family and, and the detriment of the family and, and the corruption of the family and the destruction of the family. We could see it easily listed out in numbers, but I don't think we need numbers to prove the fact. I think we see it in the media. We see it in television. We see it in, in, in different things and articles that we read online. It is evident in our world that the family is becoming more and more endangered every day. Media likes to, to portray all of the things wrong within marriage so they, or within family, and so they constantly parade the, the horrible and horrifying statistics across the screen, and we see them constantly on any news outlet that you could ever possibly find. And, and, and it talks about just the, the effects of, or the, the, the divorce rate, and we see the ideas of, of sexual rebellion and infidelity. We also see you know, children in, in delinquency, and we, we see all of these things, even to the extent of child's rights right? Where kids are divorcing their parents. And it's just this crazy, mind-blowing concept of things that are actually happening. And we see the family itself being destroyed on a daily basis. And, and for the last 30 or 40 years, uh, it has been placed in front of us over the entirety of my life. There has been an ex- in existence this idea of doing away with family. In fact, many people are are gladly carving out the tombstone of the family, right? And they're doing it happily. Uh, In a book entitled The Death of Family, a British physician suggests doing away with the family completely because he says it is a primary conditioning device for for a Western imperialistic worldview. Kate Millett, who was a very prominent feminist, uh, wrote a book called Sexual Politics, and in it she writes that family must go because it oppresses and enslaves women. Family is under attack. There's Mrs. T. Grace Atkinson of the National Organization of Women seeks to eliminate, and this, this is a true statement, she seeks to eliminate all sex, all marriage, all motherhood, and all love. And I would say that's fairly fatal. I would say that it's fairly destructive, not just to family as a whole, but to our society as we know it. 
On the other hand, there are those who see the effects and who are aware of the disaster that may be brewing. This is a, a, a book that was a, a quote out of, uh, from the 90s by Dr. Armin Nikolai II of Harvard uh, Medical School. And he was seeing the trending in the negative effects that come with it. Now, mind you, this is a quote and a statement that came out of the early to mid-90s, okay? So I want you to hear this and, and then parallel that to where we are today, and it's a little bit scary. He says, these trends will incapacitate the family, destroy its integrity, and cause its members to suffer such crippling emotional conflicts that they will become an intolerable burden to society. What about the future? First, the quality of family life will continue to deteriorate, producing a society with a higher incidence of mental illness than ever before. 95% of our hospital beds may be taken up by mentally ill patients. This illness will be characterized by a lack of self-control. We can expect the assassination of people in authority to be frequent occurrences. Crimes of violence will increase, even those within the family. The suicide rate will rise as sexuality becomes more and more unlimited and separated from family and emotional commitment. The deadening effect will cause more bizarre experimentation and widespread perversion. As I read that, as I came across that, and I paralleled that to the time in which we live in, I had the thought of this man doesn't even realize how prophetic he was being in his statements. Fast forwarding some 25 years later, we can look at that and go, this is the byproduct of the deterioration of family. There have been family experts and and psychiatrists and all the rest scrambling all over the place to try to come up with some kind of solution. Nothing they can do seems to slow down the process of the disintegration of human relationships. You can tamper with society in a lot of places, but if you destroy the family, you destroy society. And the church often wants to do something about it, right? We have a desire to see things shift and change within the family. We have a desire to see things happen and shift and change our community and the culture around us. And the problem is too often we skip several steps within the process and we jump straight to the public ministry side of things. And we jump out and we say, okay, as a church, here's what we're doing for our community. Here's what we're doing. And these are things that need to take place. Hear me and understand this. But too often we skip steps in the process and we jump straight to, we're going to do this to fix that. We're going to do this to fix that. We're going to do this to fix that. And the reality is we can't jump straight into the public ministry side of things without getting things in order first. Today I want to look in at another Old Testament text like we did last week, but I want to come out of the book of Deuteronomy. And, and just a, a, a side note, I feel a very small victory every time I type the word Deuteronomy correctly, and I do not have to change the spelling uh, as I go. So I got very good at typing the word Deuteronomy this week, and by the end, it was just a complete success. So uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we find what is called uh, the Shema or the Shema. Uh, this is a statement that is found uh, in the chapter just after the Ten Commandments, right? So we have the Ten Commandments in chapter 5, and Moses has been up to the mountain, and the Lord has, has given him these Ten Commandments on these tablets, and he brings them down, and, and we have these Ten Commandments. Says, Here they are, you know, and we go through the whole list of things. And then we get to the Shema in chapter 6. And 
we're going to read through that, and we're going to walk through this exegetically a little bit today and, and lay kind of some incredible groundwork for family and how ultimately saving the family can save our society and save our culture as a whole. And who knows what happens here may start a revolution in this world. Amen. So in, in verse four, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Let's pray. Father, I pray today, Lord, that as we walk through your word, as we study your word, Lord, that your anointing will be on it, that you will lead us, you'll guide us, you'll guide these, these next few moments, that, that our hearts will be open to receive and to hear from your word, Lord, and that what is spoken today will change hearts and lives forever for your kingdom's sake. In Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. So I've titled this message today, Family Discipleship. And I don't usually give titles to my messages because frankly, I'm not that creative. Hence the name Family Discipleship. Not a lot of depth and thought into that. But I feel there is a vital need and necessity for understanding discipleship within the home and seeing families grow in the understanding of the Lord and the understanding of who the Lord is and in in their love for the Lord. And so today, as we talk through this, as we walk through this, like I said, I've titled this Family Discipleship. The big idea and the big thought for today is this, is this, we can't reach the world unless we reach our own home. We can't reach the world unless we reach our own home. I think uh, you can trace a lot of the, the shift in our society and in our culture back to a time in which the church did not reach the children well. And that's not just to say and place it on the church itself or the the entity of the church or, or the institution of the church, but that's to say that we did not do well within the homes of the church often enough to see the maintain maintaining society and the culture the way it is or the way it was in the good old days, right? And there are some things, yes, that the church has done extremely well in tearing down different walls and barriers and and, and causing some more unity happening in other realms. But at the same time, it was at the expense or at the cost of a lot of our own children. My dad years ago did a message where he walked through and talked through uh, the shift and what caused the huge drug revolution in the late 60s into the early 70s that caused just horrible widespread, you know, dysfunction within families and homes across the country and caused ultimately uh, the late 60s to happen, right? And so he walked through all of this and he basically walked it all the way back to the forgotten generation of the children within the church. And he said, if we had only reached the children within our own homes, church attendance would be off the charts these days because we would have reached the ones within our homes. It was just so many different things that all starts with and stems from reaching our own children within the home. So the first thing today is this, as we walk through this and as we go through this kind of line by line through this text, the first thing is it starts with you. It starts with you. It starts with you. Last week we talked about how we we said, choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve. And we said, it's a decision that you make, right? It's a choice you make within a home. It's a choice you make as a family to say, we are going to serve the Lord. But, But it starts with you as the parent. It starts with you as the individual. It starts with you as the single or as the married person. It starts in that moment with you saying, I choose Jesus. If we look at that at verse four, it says, 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These are the commandments that I give to you today that are to be on your hearts. See, the beginning of all of this and the beginning of understanding and family discipleship is that it starts with the individual person. We we can't impress something on our children that we don't first have within us. We can't impress these things on our children if we don't first live out fully what the word of God has called us to do. And that is to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our minds, with all our strength. He says, with all, you know, impress these things on your heart. Start there first. If we skip that step, If we skip that crucial moment, what in turn are we actually passing on then to our children? What are we passing on then to the next generation? It starts with you. It starts with me. See, we are in a world that is motivated by love. We live in a world that is motivated by love. We are motivated by what we love, right? I I have several things that I would say I love, right? We throw the word love around a lot for a lot of different things and a lot of uh, varying degrees of love, I guess, right? I don't love working out the same way I love my wife, right? Those are different things, yet, you know, we still say those things. I love to play golf, right? But it's different than the way I love my children. But at the same time, we are motivated within that context by what we love, right? We're going to do things that we love because... We enjoy those things. We go, okay, so in that sense of love, there's a lot of things that I'd say, man, I, I love uh, waking up early. And you know, some of y'all are going, why? Why do you love doing that? And I'm like, because there's too much to do in the day. And if I don't start early, it never, we, we won't get there, right? There's those things that we do because we're motivated by love. We go, man, I love seeing uh, people come together and worship the Lord. So I'm going to work to make sure that we have an experience where people can come and worship the Lord together, right? Those are motivators that we have. We are primarily motivated by love love in the way that we, we operate and act. You know, we are, well, we're not primarily thinkers. We're primarily lovers, right? So we do think and we process, but it, at the end, it's love that is the great motivator. If we threaten what we love, we see a stronger response, right? If, if my children or my family is threatened, it's going to cause me to do things necessary to protect my children and my family, right? If, if Lauren is in a threatening situation, I'm more likely to be uh, uh, aggressive or violent, right? Because I'm motivated by love. Now, if it's my dog, I go, well, I'm not as motivated. Uh, I'm just kidding. I love our dog. It's just poor guy's an innocent bystander. He's not even around to defend himself. What am I going to do? But we're motivated by what we love. Uh, as a response to see our family cared for, we'll work harder, right? If our job is threatened, we go, oh man, I'm not doing well. I need to work harder, right? Because we go, I need to care for my family. This, is, this love that we have is our great motivator. So how do you love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind? First of all, acquisition of knowledge, void of connection to heart, does not get us to where God wants us to be with him with our love for him. It's more than just reading the word of God is what I'm saying is it's more than just going, okay, I read the word. I gained knowledge. I acquired more information that that is not, that doesn't just swell up with love. It is shifting our heart and our desire. So we have to essentially surround ourselves with what stirs our affection for Christ. What stirs your affections for Christ? And, and there are going to be things that we can do intentionally to say, okay, God, I want to stir my affections for you. I want to build my love for you. And some of that comes from, hey, I'm going to take time this morning and I am going to read the word of God and I'm going to sit down, but I'm not reading it to mark it off of a checklist. I'm not reading it to say I accomplished this in my day, but I'm reading it to gain a knowledge and an understanding of the Lord whom I love. 
I'm going to take time to pray. I'm going to take time to be quiet and be still before the Lord and to listen to what the Holy Spirit might be speaking to me. There's some incredible opportunities that you have in your daily life that you can take those moments and say, okay, I'm going to use this time to stir my affections for Christ. And some of it is difficult. Some of it is hard. Sometimes you have to force yourself to say, no, I do love the Lord. Therefore, I am going to do these things and I'm going to set those things aside, right? It's, it's easy to do. How many of you would say, I have at least 15 minutes in the car on a commute in the mornings. Guess what? You have 15 minutes where you can shut off the sports talk radio because it's not adding anything to your life anyways. And you can turn on worship music and say, God, for the next 15 minutes while I drive, I want my heart to be turned towards you. I want my heart to be turned towards what you're saying and what you're speaking. Take time and worship. Take time and pray as you drive. Use those moments and those opportunities. And you go, man, on the way home, I get to sit and now, you know, my 15-minute drive in is now 35 minutes on the way home. Guess what? You have 35 minutes where you can say, okay, Lord, before I get home, as I take this time to unwind so I don't carry all of that stress into the house and the frustration of the day into the home and into the family, I want to decompress. I want to take time and worship you on my way home. You know, find those things that stir your affection for Christ when it comes to reading the word of God, it's so easy to take those things in as an opportunity to just almost make it a, a checklist and a check item and a to-do list, right? And that's not what God desires from us. He's, going, he's not saying, hey, as you read the word of God today, make sure you mark it off your to-do list and then move on and forget about what you read. How many of you have had those moments? I know I have many times where I go, what did I even just read out of the word of God today? And you go, man, while I was reading, I was planning the rest of my day. And I go, this was absolutely not beneficial or productive for me whatsoever. It would have been more productive to just sit down and plan out my day. Instead, I'm in two places at one time, so neither one of them are getting what they need. And so I like to adopt a model called SOAP. And you may have heard of the SOAP Bible reading plan, but let me walk through that real bit. This is practical stuff right here, but just in understanding how to stir your heart and your affections for the Lord. So SOAP is, is an acronym, S-O-A-P, and it stands for this, Scripture, Observation, Application, and Prayer. Scripture, Observation, Application, in prayer. It's simple. So first, don't try to read a huge sum of scripture. Don't feel like you go, okay, I need to read the entire book of Revelation this morning and leave with a million questions, right? Like that's, that's what's going to happen if you try to read the entire book of Revelation. And you're going to have nightmares and not sleep at night. So uh, we'll walk through that at another time. But, but so, so find a passage, find a, a chapter, one chapter. You, go, you know what? Today I'm going to read Matthew chapter two, because Matthew chapter one is just a whole genealogy, and I don't know how I'm going to apply that in anyways. Okay, so you, you go, I'm going to read one chapter out of the Bible. So I'm going to read John one, and I read that one chapter, and that's it. And you go, okay. But after you've read that, now make your observations. What happened? What did you just read? What were the, who were the characters, so to speak, in that text? What was the occasion? What was going on? What are you hearing? And just make simple observations. This doesn't have to be groundbreaking, mind-blowing stuff. You're not writing a new you know, a d document on this text. You're not writing a commentary on what you just saw or what you just read, and you're not making these great breakthrough ideas. No, this is simply, we're making observations. And then the second part, the next part of that is, application. You go, okay, what in this text today can I apply to my life? And now you've started reading, instead of just to mark through it, you're reading with intentionality. And you're taking it and you're saying, okay, God, I want your word now to stir something in me. I want your word to affect my heart. I want your word to build inside of me. And so then you take that and you, and I would recommend journaling these things, writing this stuff down. And then the last bit is you go, okay, Lord, I'm going to pray for these things. Lord, as I read, Lord, your word says that, that in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. Lord, I pray that today that your word abides in me. 
I pray that today I walk with your word in my heart. And you take those applications and you walk with those things throughout your day. And you use that. Then now the word has truly become your daily bread. And you go, wow, today I gained something new out of this word. And I've grown in my understanding of the Lord, yes. But it has stirred something in my heart. It has stirred my affection for the Lord. And then I can go, Lord, thank you for your word that you have spoken to us through your word. Thank you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit still speaks today and illuminates the word of God. Thank you that your Holy Spirit gives us leading and direction. So we take that time and we're intentional in our moments because in the beginning of all of this, it starts with the individual. If we're going to see our families loving the Lord, if we're going to see our families serving the Lord together, it starts first and, most, first and foremost with mom and dad. It starts first and foremost with the individual. For the family to be all that God has called it to be, we must be Christians first. And then give yourself over to what stirs your affections for Christ. Give yourself over to what stirs your affections for Christ. The way God intended families to be in the first place was within, within the union of Christ, right? That is the way God designed and ordained marriage. And now we as a society, as a culture, have skewed those things and mis, misinterpreted things and, and removed God from the equation in many cases altogether. But God has said, no, 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 I've called this to be within the context of a relationship with me. And it starts as being Christians. It starts with Jesus. So that's the first circle. The second circle, so to speak, if we're working in layers, it would be this, is it goes to your children. So it starts, at, starts first with you, and then it goes to your children. And then verse 7, it says, Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. And I'm going to talk about the word impress for just a moment. The word impress would be, the, the image that we're gaining from this is, is essentially like the engraver of a monument who takes a hammer and chisel in hand and, and with painstaking care etches a text into the face of a solid slab of granite. We're talking just the most detailed and precise chisel and hammer where he's going slowly and engraving these things so that it is forever within that stone so that it can't be easily wiped away. He's, he's making sure it's in deep enough so that it's not just over time eroded and, and, and fades because of, of the wear of life. But it's, he's saying carefully engraving these things. That is what it means to impress these things on your children. And when you say it that way, it sounds daunting. It sounds scary and borderline impossible. You go, my hand is not steady enough to begin to chisel things out of granite. So here's the thing that happens oftentimes is we become overwhelmed by the task of discipling our children. We become overwhelmed by the task of seeing the next generation serve the Lord and know Jesus. So we almost un, 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 unexplainably or without reason or without even thinking or unconsciously, we don't try. Or we remove it or we go, this may be awkward, this may be uncomfortable. You know what? There's going to be awkward, uncomfortable moments in any situation in parenting because children are awkward and so are parents. That's just, at the end of the day, that's what it is. And so instead of just saying, okay, I could never do this, I could never make that happen, I want to, I want to do something real fast that I want you to think about uh, is this. Don't romanticize the idea of what family discipleship and what family devotions are going to look like. Throw that notion out altogether. Here's the reality. If you expect that you're going to say, okay, every single Monday at 6 p.m., we are setting aside 15 to 20 minutes for family devotions. There is nobody can break this commitment. This is, you have no outs. You are here. If you can do that, 
awesome. But the reality is the moment you say, okay, this is when it's going to be, every force in the universe is going to come against you. And every practice is going to be on Monday nights at six o'clock. Every time you need to go, I mean, it's everything's going to fall on Monday. It's never going to happen. And then when you get into those moments, don't expect the second Pentecost moment to happen within your home, right? The reality is a lot of times discipleship and devotional moments within the family context end with a kid having to go to bed early. Somebody's angry. Somebody's getting spanked. And right in this is kind of you go, what just happened to my night? This is not what I was intending or expecting. Here, let me just, throw, it, don't romanticize it. Don't place these ideas that it's got to be this perfect thing at this perfect time in every situation, every moment, because the reality is, is it's not going to look like that. And that's okay. That's perfectly okay. If you come to the agreement that you say, hey, some point during this week, We're going to take 12 minutes and and we're going to sit together and we're going to talk about a scripture. We're going to read a scripture and then we're going to let everybody talk about it. We're going to discuss it. Let me tell you this, parents. You also don't have to feel like you need to have a three-point sermon prepped and prepared and ready to go. You don't have to have like the ABCs of salvation, right? You don't have to have like, you don't have to have this great like Baptist message where everything starts with the letter C and you go, man, I feel so good about myself because everything had the same letter. You know, no, it doesn't have to be like, don't romanticize or over, overdo the idea of what it is that family discipleship has to look like it listen it boils down to consistency in taking those moments let's look through this text a little bit let's walk through this for a moment how many of you ever sit at home this is when you're sitting down how many of you would say i have a couch in my house or at least a pillow right maybe you've got like this whole asian motif going on you sit on the floor it's cool it's whatever but you sit in your home man guess what you have opportunities now for discipleship you have opportunities now for, for, for family discipleship. You have opportunities to, to sit down and to, to throw something out there like, hey, we're sitting and there's nothing really important on television right now. We could probably turn this off for 15 minutes and talk about a scripture. And, and we could take those moments and those opportunities. And, and here's, I'll tell you just, just full disclosure, we're not perfect in how we disciple our children we have tried many different things and I am guilty of saying, okay, this night at this time, this is when we do it. And can I tell you that lasts a total of about three weeks max. And we're like, hey, we made it three weeks this time of consistently like every single time. It's just, it doesn't work that way. But if you have opportunities where you go, okay, we're sitting together. We have times now where we're sitting down and we're going to just throw out a little text and a little verse. And listen, you know the level of your children's ability to, to focus. You know their ability to understand and to reason. So don't, don't try to go like to a three-year-old and be like, hey, uh, what do you think it means to be born again? Right? And they're going to be like, what does it mean to be born? Like I've just been, haven't I? Right? You know, so, so understand that there are differences in understanding those things. And those are things that we will teach and they will learn and they'll grow in those things over time. But listen, if, you have, if you're sitting down, you have an opportunity to share it. And can I, can I say this to you? Uh, this is one of the things that, that I think is so crucial in homes and is often neglected. Please, please, please eat together at the table. And you go, you don't know my schedule. You go, Listen, I do. I understand. We have two children that play soccer. And they practice on different nights in different locations. Like you know, so we understand it. Like We're running kids and we're shuttling kids. And, and I understand sometimes sitting together for dinner means that you're throwing chicken nuggets in the back seat, right? And you're like, hey, eat this fast while you finish your homework and change your clothes for practice, right? Like Those are real nights and that's reality. And like I said, we're not trying to romanticize this. But let me challenge you. Some of the best conversations we have in our home are when we have nights where we can sit down together and eat dinner together. 
Fight for those things. Fight for those moments. We get to sit with our kids at the dinner table a few nights a week. And when we do, we ask a question all the time. And this is such a great question. What was the best part of your day? Guess what? You now have something that they can't just say, you know, a yes or no answer to. They can't just be like, how was your day? Good. Did you have a test? Yes. Right? Because if you don't give your kids opportunities to speak, guess what? They're not just going to take them on their own. I was that kid. My mom always hated it. And bless her heart. Now I'm, we're, yes, I have two of me in that regard. And they don't ever want to say anything. But ask open-ended questions when you're sitting. You have these opportunities. So you would say, what was the best part of your day? Well, now they get to share those things. We get to celebrate that. We're like, man, isn't God good that he allowed you to play basketball today at recess? Because that's typically about what the best part of the day was. Oh, you played soccer today at recess. Man, God is so good that he allows you to be at a school where you can go outside and you can have friends and you can kick the ball into the back of the net. Isn't that awesome? You know? And then it turns into, yeah, but Liam tripped me and he fell me and he didn't even say he was sorry. And I'm like, all right, well, now we get this another teaching moment, right? So then we go from there. But take those opportunities. We have some of the best conversations with our children at the table because we don't have phones at the table. We put those things aside and it's not even ever been a written rule. It's just something that we've done, I guess, in that regards. And we say, okay, we're going to sit and we're going to talk. We're going to have opportunity here to discuss this. And one of the kids usually is so hungry that he's ready to say, the, say prayer for the dinner but on his own. He's like, y'all ready? Uh, Jesus bless us food, thank you, Lord, and amen. And I'm like, man, I barely sat down. Goodness gracious, it's crazy. But use those opportunities, please. I, I challenge you, I challenge you, I challenge you. If you can, find at least one night a week where you can sit together as a family. And again, don't romanticize it. If you have an 18-month-old and you're sitting at the high chair with them or whatever, they're gonna throw food somewhere. Things are gonna fall on the ground. You're gonna pick it up and they're gonna drop it again. It becomes a game in two seconds, right? You understand these things. But begin to create those habits in that culture within your home where you say, we want to be together. Because if you're not influencing them, somebody else is. So find time to sit together. So it says, you know, when you're sitting, when you're walking, by the way, when you walk, by the way. Now, mind you, we don't do a whole lot of walking too much anymore these days. But let me tell you, your car gives you just the most incredible captive audience where they have no choice and nowhere to go not without the risk of injury or death. So uh, they are there. They are with you. And you go, you can't get out because we're going 60 miles an hour right now in a 45 and trying to get there on time because we're running late, right? But you have the opportunity. You have those moments where you go, hey, listen, uh, today when this person does that to you, right? How many of you know that there are kids that don't get along well with your children, right? And so you have these conversations. But then you can teach them things like, hey, the Bible says that we should do this and we should act this way. We should do. And those are moments where you go, hey, now I am working to impress them on my children, you can impre- in those small, subtle moments, like I said, don't try to make it this thing where you go, if I'm not teaching my kids 14 scriptures a week and they're not memorizing them and they don't have the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John memorized by the time they're eight, I'm failing as a parent. No, you're not. Because if that's the case, <laughs> I'm a failure, right? And so it's just the reality is, is we take the opportunities and take the moments where we say, you know what? I'm not going to let this moment slip or opportunity go by. I'm going to be able to correct and to show them exactly what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your soul. And I'm going to help them to live this out. I'm going to help them to live this out. You don't have to force it or make it awkward. The opportunities will present themselves. 
And if we are close to the Lord as we should be, if we've been spending time developing our love for the Lord and drawing near to the Lord, then the Holy Spirit will speak to us and he will reveal those moments to us. And it's the coolest thing in the world when we step into the flow of the Spirit and we step into his leading. And when he has something for us, then we can turn to him and say, hey, God, I think they are trying to look for an answer for something. Can you give me wisdom now? And God will speak. And then we just go, hey, I heard you say this. Let me tell you what the Bible says. Let me tell you what, what God says. Let me tell you what, what it sh- what, how we should do this. As, as Christians, what does this look like? What is, you know? And we take those opportunities and those moments and we are just subtly impressing them on our children. We're impressing them on our children. Let me, let me set some of you free from a mindset and a thought process. Your parenting will not save your children. Only God can do that. Only God saves. Only God extends grace. Only God gives salvation. As parents, we can help lead and direct. We can impress on our children, right? The Bible does tell us, train your child in the way they should go, and when they're old, they will not depart from it, right? We have a role and a responsibility in leading them, but hear me when I say this. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the leading of, of, of God as he, as he pulls. And the word faith literally means persuasion, right? It's the work of the Spirit as he begins to persuade the heart to build our faith, right? It is in those things that it is the work of the Lord that saves our children. It is our role and responsibility to help point them and lead them in that. We can't go in and be like, hey, uh, be saved now, right? It doesn't work in that way. It doesn't work in that manner. So understand and have a freedom in that to say, okay, my job is to pray for my children. My job is to lead my children to the Lord so that when the opportunity arises, they know the right decision to make. They know the right choice to make. But in the end, only God saves. And let me tell you this, God does save and can save six and seven-year-olds. That was my story. You know, grace, you know, all glory to God that, that I, was, I received grace at a young age and, I, and I've, I've walked in that and I've had my ups and downs. I've made mistakes. I've done stupid things along the way and that's just the reality of it. And we call that sanctification and we say, thank you, Jesus. But, but that's my story, right? And I have a, a seven-year-old who is gonna be getting baptized on May 19th, which is a cool moment. And you're gonna see me with my ugly cry. So just, just roll with it and just be ready for that. But we asked him the other day and I think I shared this last week, like, hey, have you asked Jesus in your heart? And he said, yes, three times right and this is and, and he could tell us like all these locations when, when it was just that you know just it's a great moment i just love it but but god can save and does save children at seven years old but it doesn't always work that way some of you may go yeah my story is i got saved at at 18 i got saved at 22 i got saved this time and this time and whatever and that may be your story and that may be uh, the story of your children but our role and responsibility is to do all we can to point our children to jesus Point them to Jesus. And let me also say this. Parents, just because your children turn 18 doesn't mean that they're not still your children. Just because they turn 18 and walk out the door and they've become adults. (laughs) Yeah, right. Uh, Does not mean that you're not still their parent. And children, just because you turn 18 does not mean that you no longer have to listen to or honor your parents The word of God says, honor your father and your mother, and it doesn't have an end date on that. It does not say, honor your father and mother until you marry. Honor your father and mother until you graduate high school. Honor your father and mother until you graduate college. Honor your father and mother until you move out on your own. It doesn't say that. No, no, no. It says, honor your father and your mother, and that's the end of it. That's the statement. 
That's the statement. In fact, it does say this is the first commandment with the promise. It says if you do so, you'll have long life on earth. And that's another story, another message altogether. But it, just because you turn 18, just you, you are not free from being their child. In the same way, parents, don't have the mindset and the idea that, well, I can't do anything about it now. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. You're still mom. You're still dad. You can still lead. You can still direct. And you can still pray. You can still pray. We will not save them by persuasion. Only God can save them. But we can be obedient. We can impress them on our children. We can impress them on our children as we, as we, as we sit, as we walk, when we rise, when we lie down. We can impress them on our children. The third thing is this. From there it spreads to the community. From there it spreads to the community. Verse 8, it says, Tie them as, a, as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. This is what's great. This was intended to be a metaphorical idea that Moses is saying. When he talks about, you know, you know uh, when, when you're walking, when you're sitting, you know, he's given, first of all, he's kind of given ideas and opportunities and moments. And then he gives this thought of tie them on your forehead and on your wrist, right? And, and bind them to you. And, and so, that, so that when people see it and they say, says, write them on the door frames, write them on the gates. This is all meant to be metaphorical because he's saying, if you live this out, it will be evident to those around you. It'll be as if it is written on your forehead or written on your wrist, written on your door frame, written on your gates. But if you look at the, the Israelites in, in very near generational gaps there after post, just after this time, you see that they would have these boxes, that they, in these boxes they would write out the scriptures of the Shema, and they would put it in these boxes, and they would tie them literally from then these boxes on their foreheads and around their wrists, and then they would even write them out on the doorposts and on the gates. And this was then meant to be a sign to the community and those around them that they were a, a family that had chosen to serve the Lord, to love the Lord their God with all their hearts, minds, and souls. And so read all that. So, they would write these things out and show this in that way. I mean, Moses, I wonder if later on, if he's watching from heaven going, you totally miss the point. This was not about you actually writing these things and, and wearing these things. And again, it goes back to look at me, right? And we see that a lot with the Pharisees in the New Testament of this display of I'm so great and I'm so wonderful and I'm, I, I'm needing to be seen by all people. And this essentially is kind of a birthplace of that in a sense where they're going, okay, I've written this. Notice what's on my head. Notice what's on my wrist. See our home and see the gate out by the street that, that people can know that we are followers of Christ. And what Moses' intentions was was to say, no, 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 no. Live a life in such a way that it is evident to all those around you. As we impress it on our children, as our children grow in understanding the Lord, as we live our lives as a family of believers, as we live our lives as a family of Christians that are seeking to please the Lord in how we live, the world around us will pick up on those things, will recognize those things, will see those things, and, and notice the marked difference in our lives. And how cool would it be if, if through the way we live, if through the way we interact with those around us, through the way that, that we are within our community and within our neighborhoods and with our neighbors, that people begin to pick up on the difference in us. So that when they face problems in their marriage, when they face problems with their children or problems within their homes, that they come and turn to someone that they look at and say, there's something different. There is a marked difference about you. The way you live is not the way I live. And your home is different than my home I need to come and turn to you. 
How cool is that? If through the way we live, through the way we love the Lord, through the way we impress it on our children, we begin to see communities actually shift and change. To me, that's a remarkable thought process. That's why I say maybe what we say here starts a revolution that spans the nation where we say, okay, from this moment, when we as people decided to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, and strength, that we decided to impress it on our children, that we decided to live it out, we decided to disciple our children, to build them up in who they are in the Lord so that they have the relationship and the understanding. So as they grow, as the decision is placed before them, as the Holy Spirit speaks, that they turn to to the Lord and they say, yes, Father, we, we want to give our hearts to you. As that begins and we see our homes and our families loving and serving the Lord, that it affects the community and the neighbors around us that they come and say, what is different about you? We need that in our home. That changes a society. That changes a nation. That changes our city. That flips things upside down and completely returns them back to the way God intended it. The way we live is how we write it on our, our, our foreheads and our wrists. It's how we write it on our doorposts. It's how we write it on our gates. How we live is, is what is seen. It's what's visible, the way we speak, the way we speak to one another, the way we interact with one another. It is how the world is watching and seeing. And when they notice a marked difference, they go, there's something that I want that you have and I don't know what it is. It's through this that we see a shift to change. I'll invite the worship team to join me. This morning, my, my heart is this, as we walk through this, as we, as we speak through this, is to see our families just continue to grow in a love for the Lord. To see our hearts grow in a love for the Lord. To see our hearts shift and change with a love for the Lord. And as we do so, it alters the way we live, the way we think, the way we act, and the way we carry out. I, there's something remarkable that I find in this text. That, that Moses, in giving this, doesn't say, hey, uh, love the Lord. He, doesn't, he says, love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul. He, he, says, he, he doesn't say... Follow the Ten Commandments and it will be known to all of those around you that you love the Lord. He doesn't go back to saying, follow the set of rules. Because the idea is, out of the love you have for God, there will then in turn be a living out of this Ten Commandments, right? He says, if you truly love the Lord, if you live in a way that loves the Lord, there's a marked difference. If you live in a way that loves the Lord, keeping the commandments will not be a difficult thing or a hard task because it won't be thought of as a list of rules and regulations. It'll be an overflow, an extension of the love you have for God. It'll just be an overflow. It'll pour out of the love you have for, for Jesus in the first place. That's that marked difference that when you say, man, I love Jesus so much. It's not, a, it's not going, I want, to do, I want to do right. I want to do everything. About, you know, it's about, I want to love Jesus fully. And that looks different than just a, a head knowledge or understanding of who Jesus is, where we're working hard to keep the commands and it's this rigid daily, daily, daily. I've got to do this. I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to do this. No, no, no. It becomes an outflow and an overflow of your love for Jesus. And out of that, there is that marked difference. It's not just about saying, I, I, I want to look good for people. No, it's about, I want to love Jesus well. I want to love Jesus well. And when we fully love Jesus, there is a marked difference in how we live. In how we live.
And it starts with us. It starts with the parents. It starts with the adults. And then even, let me say this. You may say, I'm single. Uh, I, I, we don't have children. Just guess what? You can get it right now. You can get it right now. And you may go, well, I, you know, I'm never having children again. Fair. Listen. We still have kids all around this place that are watching every one of us. Even in moments we don't realize it. My children will ask questions all the time. I have an old, my oldest son is the most observant individual I've ever met on the planet. He's going to be a great boss one day. Um, he thinks he is one now. You know, it's one of those deals, right? So his little brother, bless his heart. But he's so observant. He sees all things. He sees everything. He's aware of everything. So he'll ask questions all the time. He'll ask questions about, about morality and about, about religion. He'll ask questions about spirituality and just all these, like, deep, deep questions. And I'm like, you're nine. Slow down. thought I'd have a few more years to prep for these questions. But he sees everything. He's aware of everything. So when, when you say, well, I don't have children. I'm not having children. Guess what? There are kids that are still watching. And they're still seeing so what you do matter the way you love the Lord matters and beyond that it matters in your relationship with Jesus it matters so what stirs your affections for Christ what stirs your heart for Jesus pursue those things pursue those things and let your love for the Lord be overflowing into every other area of your life every other area of your life I'm going to invite you all to stand. I want to, I want to pray over all of our, our families. I want to pray over, for, over all of our homes and, and our children. And I know our children are, are being ministered to today in, in just the greatest way possible, just with an awesome team that we have here doing just great things in our kids' ministry. And, and, but I want to pray over you as the parents this morning. I want to pray over you as, as singles and as individuals that God will impress on our hearts a deep, deep love for Jesus. Deep love for Jesus. And just kind of a reverent atmosphere in a moment where we say, God, we turn our hearts to you. Let me pray. Father, you're so good. You're so good. You sent your son for us. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you. Jesus, we ask today with our hearts turned to you, with our minds set on you, we pray, oh God, that you just begin to stir our love for you. Begin to stir our love for you. Our desire for you. Our longing for you. Begin to stir our affections, oh God. Begin to stir our hearts for you. In everything, in every, every a- aspect of our day, in every, every facet of our lives, Lord, I pray that you begin to stir our affections for you. So God, I pray today over every home, over every child, Lord, over every, every single, Lord, every, every, every broken and mended and blended home in this church. God, we stand before you just people with a mess of a life. We stand before you, God, as people that have walked through brokenness and we have walked through the lowest of the lows and the highest of the highs and yet we come before you and we say oh God we stand before you as as humbled as possible and we say oh God help us to grow in our love for you and our affection for you 
uh, that you will help us to lead our families well. Help us to lead our families well. Lord, I pray that you give us the boldness in moments to even speak to our own children about you and about your word, about what your word says. God, I pray that you help us to get past the awkward moments because it matters. Because it matters. So Lord, I pray blessing over every home, over every person. I pray that your spirit will rest on them. God, that they'll leave today with a greater love for you, a greater desire for you. Lord, that's our heart. That's all we want. There's a deeper desire for you and a, and a, and a closer walk with you. So Lord, I pray that over every person and I ask that your hand will be on them in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Welcome to the Grace Hill Podcast, a weekly podcast of our Sunday messages driven by our pastor, Michael Norman. Grace Hill exists to bring God's biblical truth to your everyday life. As we begin this week's message, we invite you to open your Bibles and capture what God has in store for you today. 